You're listening to the Vision Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are taking a closer look at the core values we are seeking to build in our community in Louisville. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, Father, I pray that we would not take this moment lightly. I pray that your Holy Spirit would unite our hearts as one. I pray, Father God, that you would apply this sermon through your Holy Spirit in particular ways in each person's heart. I pray, Father God, that you would uh, anoint me to preach this sermon uh, for your namesake and your glory. I pray that you would help these listeners to listen in a way that honors and glorifies you. For your word says, for whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, do it to your glory. And whether we uh, sit in the auditorium, Lord, and, and listen to a sermon on this October morning, we know that you want us to do it to your glory. So glorify yourself as we breathe and breathe life into this fellowship, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The United States Military Academy at West Point is a prestigious academy. It's a prestigious school. in order to apply to, uh, to, be, uh, to get into the school, uh, one has to be at the top of their game and one of the top uh, students in the country. Every year, about 14,000 students apply for West Point Academy. And they normally start as juniors in high school. In order to make it to West Point, you have to have an impeccable ACT test, an SAT test. In order to make it through their process, you have to be in top physical shape as part of what you have to do is to be tested in running and uh, exercise, which includes push-ups, uh, sit-ups, pull-ups, and the like. Every year, 14,000 people apply And at the end of that process, they whittle it down to 1,200 people who are accepted. And out of the 1,200 people who are accepted, one-fifth of those who are accepted will actually end up graduating from West Point. Just one-fifth. Why would one-fifth of the people who go through this rigorous process to get into one of the top schools in the country only end up graduating. Well, one researcher by the name of Angela Duckworth wanted to find this out, and she began to look at um, who are uh, the one-fifth that make it through. What is their makeup? What is the key uh, to them being able to end up graduating? And and what is it that weeds them out? And what she found is is that West Point has a a program uh, that is known in the books as The Beast. And what the beast is, is a process that helps to, to kind of whittle out uh, people who apply to West Point. And at the end of it, um, only those who are, are most passionate make it through. And in her research, she found out that it wasn't the most talented that made it through. And it wasn't those who had the highest scores on the SAT or the ACT, though talent does matter. The determining factor of people who ended up graduating from West Point was what she called the grit factor. She writes, 
In sum, no matter the domain, the highly successful had a kind of ferocious determination that played out in two ways. First, these exemplars were unusually resilient and hardworking. Second, they knew in a very, very deep way what it was that they wanted. They not only had determination, but they had direction. In her book, Grit, Angela Duckworth proves that while talent is important, that passion and perseverance and effort is doubly important. In the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul is writing to uh, the, the church in Philippi, and essentially he is writing them and he is encouraging them to, to have grit. And not only is he encouraging them to have grit, but I would argue that the apostle Paul was a man of grit. He writes this letter which is a happy letter, a, a, a joyous letter, a, a delightful letter while in prison in Rome. That's grit. He writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's grit. He writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, these words, I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret to being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Somebody say, that's grit. The apostle Paul was a gritty disciple, was a man who had both passion and perseverance. And he is calling the church of Philippi to be a people of grit. In our first sermon, in our sermon series, we talked about grit and we defined it by looking at the Oxford definition of grit. And we learned that grit is the quality or virtue of showing courage and determination and continuing to do something that is difficult or unpleasant. Grit isn't simply being excited or passionate about something. Grit is enduring in that which you have found yourself once excited or passionate about. The Urban Dictionary defines grit as rough and undefined, as in film depictions that portray life as it truly is, without false distortion, stylations, or idealization. Angela Duckworth says that grit is when passion and perseverance meet. Grit is what the Apostle Paul had, and he's thankful to the church of Philippi as they have supported him in his ministry. And thus far, they have been proven to be servants of Christ, servants who are gritty. But he encourages them to continue in that grit, to not live off their past success, but to persevere in it. In Philippians chapter 3, he tells them to forget the things that are behind and to reach forward to what is ahead, to continue to be gritty, to strive, to continue to progress in the gospel, to, to be gritty in the midst of the beast. And this church was faced with three particular challenges. The first challenge that they were faced with is that they were faced with persecution. The church that is in Philippi was named after Philip, the son of Alexander the Great in 356 AD. It was a very urban and political place 
where ex-Roman soldiers were given land in the Roman dream in order to uh, find a, a solace and solitude with Rome. And so they were living in an area where they uh, were, Christians were living in an area where they were surrounded by people who were deeply affectionate towards Rome. And at the time we had a man by the name of Nero who was the emperor of Rome. And Nero was often uh, addressed as not only emperor, but as Lord. Nero is Lord. Nero is savior to many of the people who occupied Philip. Philippians. They saw Nero as the one who had given them land, who had given them prosperity, and the one whom they were going to be faithful to, which, which brought for a peculiar situation for the church in Philippi. Because their mantra is Jesus is Lord. Second challenge that they are facing, and maybe even more particularly that Paul was facing, was personal persecution. Paul is in prison. Paul is not free. He is in chains, connected to a Roman soldier for preaching the gospel and living it out faithfully. And while he's in prison, he has some false teachers or, or people who, who he's not sure if they're really in Christ or not, but they're preaching in such a way that is causing him trouble, according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, others are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. More than likely, they're looking at the apostle Paul, and they're telling the church of Philippi, don't be like Paul. Paul is in prison. Paul is in chains. Paul is suffering. Be like me. Avoid prison. Avoid shame by taking this version of Christianity, which says that you were meant to live your best life now. Paul is saying, no, I want you to have grit. I want you to understand that suffering is a mark of being a Christian. But third, the church is facing a beast and that there seems to, to be some disagreement that is starting to happen. This church that has supported Paul, the church has been a great light in Philippi, the church that has been faithful and that is spreading, uh, seems to have some contention and conflict in its midst. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, the apostle Paul writes, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are two leaders who are in the church of Philippi who are having a, a public disagreement. And so he calls them out in the letter. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, these gritty women, these strong women, these faithful women who have lost their sense of direction, lost their sense of focus. He says, I urge you to help these women along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose name are in the book of life. He's saying, help them to return to their focus. And so what we see here in Philippians chapter 2 is the Apostle Paul is going to call for this church to have grit by, by giving them the true example or picture of grit, which is Jesus Christ. But in order for a church to be gritty, in order for a church to fill up its city, in order for a church to be faithful, the church has to have two components. The first component is they have to be unified. And the second component is, is that the only way that they're going to be unified is if they have Christ-like humility. Unity 
with Christ-like humility. Unity undergirded by a humility that is demonstrated by Christ is going to equal grit, is going to equal a passion and a perseverance that can rock Philippi. It's going to equal a passion and a perseverance that can rock the city of Louisville. And as we talk about vision and have vision for this series and have vision for our church, the Lord is calling us to be a, a passionate people. But not just the people who are excited, but, but a people who will endure, a people who will persevere. Grit is where passion and persevere collide. And it collides, and it only works if everyone is unified. And if everyone is pursuing humility, God is calling us, Sojourn Community Church, not to be 10% gritty, not to just have 10% of our, our church who takes this vision and say, yes, this is what I want. It's not going to work. God is not calling us to, to have 20% of our church say, yes, I'm behind this vision and go. No. Or 30, 40, 50%. God is calling us as a church to come together around this vision as a unified front and say, this is where we want. This is our direction. This is our passion. I want to be a contributor, not a consumer. I believe that God has made me a covenant member of this body for such a time as this. And I'm ready to join forces with my brothers and sisters and go. And this is what the Apostle Paul is laying before the church, these two things. The first is he's calling them to live together in unity and to work towards a common vision. And the way he calls them to do this is, is by first giving them a motivation for unity. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. <laughs> Paul is going to say, if there is any encouragement. Another way to read this is since there is encouragement. He knows that there is encouragement. If there is any encouragement in Christ, he's saying if, if you are in Christ Jesus and you have experienced him and his good news and you find yourself built up, if there's any consolation of love, in other words, if, if the love of Christ comforts you, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, in other words, if, if the Spirit unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ, if there's any affection and mercy... If we together have experienced the tenderness of God, listen to what he says. He says, make my joy complete. <laughs> and this is the main thrust of the pa passage. passage. Paul is saying, listen, church of Philippi, I've labored amongst you. Read Acts chapter 16. I've poured out my life amongst you. I, 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 have, I have shown you that I am sincere about Christ. I, I have sacrificially served you all. And, 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 and if these things are true about you, and if you know and are confident that, that I am whom God has made me to be and who I said I am, would you do me one favor? Would you make my joy full? And what's going to make Paul's joy full? Look at the text. By thinking the same way. By having the same love, by being united in spirit, by being intent in one purpose. Listen, Sojourn, if you are here today and you are a member of Sojourn Community Church, if you can make my joy full, if you can make the elders of this body joy full, the leaders of this church joy full, if you want to see us happy, if you want to complete our joy, 
have the same mindset. Wrap your heart around the same purpose. And what is the purpose that Paul is getting at to the the church of Philippians? Well, we go back to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He lays this out, this one thing. (laughs) So he's building on his argument and in Philippians chapter 2, he's already told him what this one thing is, and he's, he's once again expressing it a different way in Philippians chapter 2. This one thing, as citizens of heaven, as those who belong to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Rome, as those who have been bought by Jesus Christ, as those who have been encouraged by him, who find their comfort in him, who, who has been bound together with other believers, this one thing, as citizens of this kingdom, not Taurus, as sojourners, this, this one thing, What's the one thing? Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work. I'm sorry. This one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he's calling them to, this one purpose. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you. Are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel not being frightened by your components. In other words, this one thing is to progress in the gospel, to continue to move forth in the gospel. And he uses an interesting word picture. He says, standing firm. This word, to stand, in this passage, in the Greek, is a word that was often used for military, for the military. For a group who was in the military who was standing firm, who was holding down the fork, so to speak who was not inching from the posts that they were called to protect. Paul is saying, I need you all to be unified, to stand as soldiers. And then he goes on to say, to be on one accord, which can be translated or to be one soul. Paul is saying, if we are going to fill up our city in Philippi, if we're going to be successful Christians We have to live worthy of the gospel, and we have to do it together in unity. Take your finger, if you would, and kind of poke yourself in the nose. Now take another finger and poke yourself in the nose. Now keep doing that. Third finger. Every time you do this, it gets, if you're poking yourself, it gets a little strong. And I want you to take a fist. No, I'm just joking. You get the point. If we are living as individuals with our own individual version of Christianity, picking and choosing what parts of our vision we want to take, picking and choosing what part of the Christian life we want to live out, we are not going to be strong. But if we come together as a church and wrap ourselves around our vision to to fill up our city as gritty disciple makers, we can be strong and we can make a dent in Satan's kingdom. And Paul is telling the church of Philippi the same thing. And the way in which we find this this unity is is by by walking in humility. This unity is found in in humility. And this is what the apostle Paul is going to put before us in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. This kind of individualistic version of Christianity. This kind of, uh, I won't be held accountable to, to a church This kind of, I am a lone ranger. I do and go as I please. 
I interpret the scriptures in, in a way that makes me most comfortable. I, I don't really have to be a part of a community group. I, I won't serve. I'm just going to kind of come and take. Um, um, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try to be gritty. Uh, that's not me. I'm not even going to try to be discipled or be a disciple maker. That's not me. Uh, that's selfish ambition. That's, that's conceit. And Paul says, no. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. And the key word here in this passage is the word humility. The word humility comes from a Latin word, or to be humble comes from a Latin word, which essentially means to be low. It's to embrace our creatureliness. It's to remember that God created us and he got dirty, he got gritty of all his creation that he spoke into existence. He, he, he put his hands in the dirt and he shaped and he formed us and we are from the hummus. We are from the, the dirt. We are from the ground. We are decorated dust. We are not Lord of our own lives. To be humble is not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less. It's not to walk around with your head down and thinking that everyone is, infer is, 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 uh, uh, that is inferior to you, or nor is it to think that everyone is superior to you. To be humble is to have an appropriate estimation of yourself as an image bearer in, in Christ. C.S. Lewis writes it well when he says this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you would think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is a virtue, specifically it's a Christian virtue. In first century Rome, humility was not a virtue that people looked upon. To be boastful, to be proud, uh, to be this A-type personality. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Look at me. I'm the example. Look at how great my life is. That was the way of the culture in America. I mean, in first century Rome. And the apostle Paul is saying, no, there is there's a kingdom virtue. There's a kingdom ethic. There's a, a kingdom picture of, of, of what it means to, to be in Christ. And this, this picture is the opposite of what you see. It's not living conceitedly. It, it's not living with an overinflated version or a, a ego. It's, it's actually living, understanding your creatureliness and that life should not be about you, but it's about Christ. And it's this picture of, of life and it's this way of living that is going to be attractive to people who are not 
in Christ and who are not in our community because we live in a very self-absorbed society where everything is about me, 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 and I, I, I. Imagine a community of people who are, are not waking up in the morning thinking about me, 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 and I, I, I who is not constantly dwelling on how everyone else can serve me and how the world resolves around me, but who are living out of a gratefulness to Jesus Christ for what he has done, who lives with an attitude that says that I have already deserved, uh, received more than I deserve, who are living saying, I want to pursue Christ in such a way that one day, like Paul, I can say, I have learned to be content. This is what the Apostle Paul is putting before the church at Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul has just put this picture of Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of humility, as the ultimate example of, of grit before them. And he says, here, I need you to obey this. You all have been so faithful in pursuing this, but continue to pursue this. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to walk before the Lord with a deep reverence. But we don't pursue this humility in our own strength. It's impossible for me to be other person focused in my own power. I pursue this actively, but I understand John chapter 15, verse 5, that without Christ and without abiding in him, I can do nothing. That's why he says, for it is God, it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Humility comes from us abiding in Christ as we abide in him, as he is the true vine. Those nutrients, that DNA that Jesus has, that virtue that Jesus has becomes our virtue. And now we begin to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We begin to walk in love and patience and joy and peace. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is a humble person. And if we are going to be people of grit, if we're going to be a gritty church, it's because we're a unified church who together are pursuing this picture of the Christian life, who is rejecting this picture of the culture, which says it's all about me and my comforts and what I want, and who's accepting this picture of living for the kingdom that says it's not about me, it's about Jesus and true joy, true peace. The good life is found in me wrapping myself around him, not trying to force him to wrap himself around what I desire and want. And look what happens when we do this. We don't have this for the screen, so I encourage you guys to start bringing a Bible to, or, or something as well because it always won't be on the screen. But look at what, what the Apostle Paul writes. Do nothing, do, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Verse 14, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generations, among whom you shine like stars in the world. So Paul's application to uh, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 13 is to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, to allow the Holy Spirit to fill, uh, to work through you, and essentially to pursue a life of gratitude and not entitlement. He says the way in which you're going to fill up your city is when you are walking out of gratefulness for what Christ has done for you rather than entitlement. When you are not grumbling and complaining, but rather cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. When your coworkers say, man, there's just something about you. 
You, you work at the same place under the same boss or, or you're leading the same, the same uh, 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 place, but, 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 but rather in the midst of these hardships, rather than constantly complaining and griping and gossiping and being bitter, you're becoming better. How is it? Then they come and they check out your church and they check out your community and they say, I notice that these people, they have their own interests. This isn't uniformity that Paul is pushing. They have their own desires. They may even have different political views. They're from different ethnicities. They have different ages. They have, have different jobs. They have different goals. But there's a, a unity of interest, and they all, at the same time, with their differences, are working towards one purpose. What is this? How is it that these people from different ethnicities, from different social economic places, from different political nuances, from, from different life circumstances, all are obsessed with this Middle Eastern Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. I have a, a slide that I found from a, a commentary on Philippians, which I thought was a great picture of what this looked like for us to be unified. It's, it's me having my own interests, but it's me also coming around the people of God and making a stance for the gospel to move forth in my life and in my city. And as a result of us having one purpose, we are not focusing on ourselves, but we turn to focus upon other people's interests. We serve others. So then Paul gives us this great picture of Jesus, and he calls us to adopt the same attitude that Christ has. We have to unify around this vision of life and this vision of life that we adapt. It's the vision and life of life that Christ modeled before us. Whew. And what Paul calls here this Christ hymn. Now, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Paul is in prison. Paul has had his rights taken. Paul is being used and abused does not have freedom, but he's finding his joy in Jesus because Jesus has become his obsession. Jesus has become his life. That's why he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How is death gain, Paul? Death is gain because I get to see him face to face. And what is it about Jesus that makes him so intriguing, that makes him so beautiful, that makes him so, so wonderful? What is it that, that allows a man to be in prison and still be able to write a letter of joy to other people? It's because he's become absolutely amazed and obsessed at what Christ has done for him. We become self-centered and self-focused when we lose sight of the cross. So much so that Paul pens these words in a poetic form, so poetic that people say that this had to be a, a hymn. They call it the Christ hymn. This had to be a song. Adopt this same attitude as Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Paul wants us to wrap our purpose and vision around, this type of lifestyle. Let's break this down. Paul says, adopt the same attitude 
as Christ Jesus. What's this attitude? An attitude of humility. Notice what he says, who Jesus was in the form of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is God. In eternity's past, he was in God's form. He was a spirit just like God the Father. But what did Jesus do? Even though he was God, he did not count equality with God as something to be exploited or held on to. The Bible says he emptied himself. Now, this does not mean that he emptied himself of his godness. No, Jesus is fully God in nature and in essence. Paul goes on to explain how he emptied himself as God. He emptied himself by coming in human form. That's what it means that he emptied himself. He assumed the form of a servant. Another translation says of a slave. The God of this universe, Christians believe, wrapped himself in human clothing, became incarnate, entered into our experience, entered into our suffering, took on the posture of a slave, the posture that says the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. That's not all he did. Not only did he come in human likeness, but he came obedient to death, death on a cross. The God of this universe became human, and then he subjugated himself to death, God dying. <laughs> what humility. Not only did he subjugate himself to death, but he also subjugated himself to the worst form of death, the most grueling form of death in first century Rome, the most humiliating form of death. He was executed as a common criminal or thief. He was stripped naked, embarrassed and shamed in an honor and shame culture. He died for you and for me. Paul is saying, you take this attitude. You want to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel? You want to live in a way that shows that, that I, I, I have encouragement in Christ? I have experienced his affection and his tenderness and his mercy? I have experienced his, his Holy Spirit, which caused me to cry out, Abba, Father, and fellowship with other believers. He says, you, you want to show your appreciation? You want to live out of that? You take the attitude of Christ and you humble yourself. A gritty church is a church that sees what Christ has done. A gritty church is a church, as Tony Marita uh, 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 says, who, who lives out of this vision of Jesus' life, the second Adam, and not Adam's life. See, Adam was made in God's image, but that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to be like God. Adam was discontent with being God's servant. Adam rejected God's word in sinful disobedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Adam brought a curse on the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced, even though God did show him grace. Jesus. Jesus was and is the very essence of God, and yet, he didn't count that as something to be held on to. He took on the likeness of man. He emptied himself. He assumed the form of a slave. He humbly submitted to God's word with perfect obedience. He overcame temptation. He crushed the tempter. He took the curse for the world. And eventually he was exalted by God the Father. The cross is the ultimate picture of humility, but it's also the ultimate picture of grit. The 
cross is where passion and perseverance meet. The cross is is by which you were redeemed at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin was, was rolled away. Jesus is the exemplar, not only of humility, but grit. It was grit that allowed him to come 42 generations. It was, it was grit that allowed him to be crucified. It was grit that allowed him to be pierced. It was grit that allowed him to take nails in his palms and nails in his feet. It was grit that allowed him to take 39 lashes, save one. It was grit that allowed him to be stripped naked in front of his mothers and his brothers and treated as, as, a, as a donkey. It was grit that allowed him to go up that Via Dolorosa. It was his love for you. It was his, his obsession for, for you knowing God the Father, for you being reconciled to him, for you being forgiven of your sins, for you being filled with joy, for you having an opportunity to have your identity rooted and secure in something that would not change or shift. It, it, was, it was his passion for you, for his church, for his people. So how do we cultivate humility? <laughs> how do we cultivate grit? It's by never moving beyond the cross. It's by fighting daily to remind ourselves that his body was broken for me. It's by reminding ourselves that Jesus died as the propitiation of our sins, that he absorbed God's wrath and turned away God's anger from us. It's by reminding ourselves that Jesus obeyed his father perfectly and said, not my will, but your will be done, that he gave his life as a ransom for many. It's by reminding ourselves that the cross means that our enemy, Satan, our accuser, is defeated. It's by reminding ourselves that our sin has been paid in full, past, present, and future, that there is no guilt, that there is no shame, that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God is by reminding myself that Jesus did this. He paid it all, not simply to be our pardon, but also to be our pattern and our power to live in the same way so that people can come to see him as Lord. Oh, to be a part of a gritty church. Oh, to be a part of a gritty movement that says, I, I never want to move past the cross. The cross is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Zs of Christianity. So how do we respond? We respond by maybe by memorizing this passage. Maybe by begging God and repenting to God for being people who easily move into selfish ambition and conceit may be by remembering that Jesus is a strong man who entered into humanity, who bore our burdens, who picked them up, who went down and allowed himself to die, though being fully God, but who rose with all power in his hand and who allowed us to ascend with him. God's call for us is to come before him, repentant, 
look at our lives and say, Lord, I'm living in selfish ambition as a, as a friend. It's, it's been all about me. I believe that people exist to serve me. I'm living with selfish ambition as a church member. It's all about me. I come to consume and to take. I hardly give anything, whether time, treasure, or talent, that there is no sacrifice in me as a member of this church. Maybe it's by us repenting and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm living with selfish ambition and conceit towards my spouse by focusing on what they aren't doing, rather by then trusting you and serving them as you serve me. I'm living a selfish ambition and conceit at work as there is a, a, a disconnection between uh, uh, the way uh, that I, I, I pursue Christianity on Sunday and the way that I live it out amongst the, the members of my, my job and my career. Whatever it is, we all have to repent. I was repenting this week and reading that C.S. Lewis quote and saying, Lord, I want desperately to be that man whom you use and whom you allow to be so captivated by the cross that that I'm not gasping, gasping for attention, gasping for recognition, gasping for praise, gasp, grasping for, for, uh, for anything other than your son. Help me, help us to be a church that says, Lord, it's for you that we yearn. It's for you that I burn. It's for you that I want to live. Help me to be a gritty person who has passion and perseverance, not for my own glory, but for your glory, knowing that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, that one day I will stand before your thrones with billions of people, and the only thing that's going to matter in that moment is going to be your beautiful, beautiful beautiful son, your spirit, and you as my father. And how foolish it will seem that I lived my life so easily satisfied by things that were fleeting and that in the grand scheme of eternity doesn't matter. Y'all want to be a church. I don't have the words to, to express it, the intellect to take you there. But I, I'm just going to say it straight. I want to be a church that lives from being fueled by Jesus' cross. I want to be a part of a church that's not cruising into heaven, but that's seeking to crash like the Apostle Paul and say, Jesus Christ, thank you for filling me with your spirit. What a ride. I want to be a church that recognizes that, our, our, it's in, that he is made strong in our weakness. And the way we do that is by setting our affections and our attention on our crucified Savior, who is also exalted. And every Sunday, we take a meal together called communion that reminds us of Christ's and what he did for us. On the night that he was betrayed, he gave thanks. He broke bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we do this every single week. And it represents unity. We, we eat from loaves, big, a big loaf that, uh, that is broken, 
And this, when it's whole, it, it reminds us of Christ's body, but it also reminds us of the unity that we have together. And we drink from this cup, the same cup together, to remind us that we have one purpose, and that's to live worthy of the gospel and to pursue life in such a way that we will shine amidst stars in a dark and broken world so that he would be glorified. And we take a meal that points us to the fact that Christ loved us, that we don't have to live out of guilt, shame, or condemnation, but that we've received the message that says, my child, you are free. I delight in you every single day as if you are perfect because you've placed your faith and trust in my son. Father, Spirit, help us to be one. Help us to be united in spirit and in purpose and to stand. Help us to pursue the Christian life in a gritty way just as you, the God of this universe, is gritty by creating man from dust and recreating us to be your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Help us to to move towards the broken, not as saviors, but as sinners saved by grace wisely boldly in Jesus name Amen Hi, I'm Jamal Williams lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown thanks for listening at Midtown we value gospel centeredness biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships diverse fellowship creativity in the arts and relentless mission For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.